Awesomeologist to Awesomeology. I'm Sue. And I'm Ben. And in this episode, we're talking to Exclamation's VP of IT, Rich. And we'll dive into the history of the computer. So, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> let's start by introducing our, our guest, Rich. Rich, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me today. So uh, other than being Exclamation's VP of IT, what can you tell us about yourself? Well, I'll keep it to the IT set. Well, yeah, I'll keep it to the IT set. I have been in technology uh, since I got my first job in technology in 1981. So I, I know a lot about the history of computers. Or you think you do. We're well, about yeah, to find I out. Know. I'm going to learn more, of course. My first job in technology was repairing circuit boards for early computers. That was, and I, I won't tell you what I made, but it was, it was the pittance. But that was in 1981 and 1982. That's when I started in this industry. So I've been around a long time. And what keeps me in it is actually, you know, we're going to talk about today, all the things that change. It has changed so much in these 40 years or so um, that, um, you know, that it, it, that is crazy. And that's what keeps it interesting for sure. Cool. So you, you fixed circuit boards, if I heard you right. Yes. What? G- give us some context here or help us paint a picture. What what is what were some of those early circuit boards like? How big were they? What kind of tools did you need? Some some of them were small, you know, four by six, which were the, um, you know, the power and things like that and your filtering and all that. But some of the larger boards in the older computers and these are big mainframe type things were about a foot and a half by a foot and a half. Um, so, and they slid in and you had to use both hands and cram them in there. Um, but your, your tools were an oscilloscope, uh, a voltmeter and a soldering iron and a solder sucker. Even more important than the soldering iron was the soldering sucker, which when you heated something up, you click this little thing and it sucked all the solder out. That was not just a nickname that people called you. No, no, no. It was a very, it was a vital tool. And in those days, you with the soldering iron because you had to pull the you figure out which component was not working on the board. You had to replace it with another one. You had to remove the solder, pull it out. Well, uh, soldering is not an exact science, and you would burn yourself a lot on your fingertips. So my the fingertips on my non-dominant hand were so calloused from being burned so many times and missing with my soldering iron that, you know, I, I'm not sure I would have passed a fingerprint test or something because there was, <laughs> I may have burnt them all off. <laughs> you could have pursued a life of crime. There you go. <laughs> right. Who knows? Maybe I did. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've been, I've been called a, a solder sucker a couple times in my life. But, you know, it's true. You get used to it. Unrelated, but true. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So that was my introduction is repairing those big cards and, and, and making sure systems worked. Is there anything, anything from those early days, maybe not your, your first experience, but is there anything from those early days that exists on stuff we're using today? No, (laughs) even the, even the, I went to actually, I, my first school beside after years later, I went to college. Um, but my first school was a technical school. Um, and we learned how to, we basically learned how to breadboard and work on the, these 
these boards. And even even the the little pieces and the microprocessors that were on those boards at the time, they have been haven't been used in in ages. I mean, it's still they they just keep you know it was still Intel back then, like on the microprocessors, but the timing and all that type of stuff is, is so far advanced. It's it's you wouldn't even it's not even the same same ballpark anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Well, I don't want to accidentally uh, get into what Sue's got planned for us next. So I'm just going to, I'm going to turn it over to Sue. Sue, how, how are you kicking us off in the, the history of computers? So here's what I did. A brief explanation. I found a really excellent article that hits highlights for the last 200 years. And so I grabbed some highlights Things that I thought were notable. There are definitely more things that exist in the world, but things I thought were notable. Once I grabbed those highlights, I also stuck some little trivia questions in here for you guys to, right. to you guys to try. <laughs> um, and then that would be why Ben does not know what any of this is because I kept it carefully <laughs> in a secure bunker underground. So for the last several weeks. If this is a trivia contest, Rich, just saying you you gotta pull this team here. I don't know what I'm gonna I don't know what I'm gonna be able to contribute. I thought we were on our own, like Jeopardy. Oh shoot. what is <laughs> we'll see. We'll You're the see guest what happens. House this week. Yeah, this is my it's Anderson Cooper this week on That's, Jeopardy. Yes, it is. So. Yeah, we're big yeah. Jeopardy fans. So here. I will be I will be your Anderson Cooper for today. So we start in the 1800s. So I tried to break it down by sort of, at first you can break it down by century. And then it starts to get a little more granular. So we start in the 1800s. In 1801, in France, a weaver and merchant named Joseph-Marie Jacquard creates a loom that uses punch cards to automate the design of woven, woven fabrics. Early computers would use similar punch cards but not until 1890. In 1890, so 89 years later, an inventor named Herman Hollerith, Hollerith designed the punch card system that uh, helped calculate the 1880 census, US census. It took him three years to create it, but it saved the government at that time $5 million. Wow, at that time, that's great. Yeah. So, in 1911, here's your first trivia question. In 1911, Herman would go on to be one of the founders behind what company that still exists today? IBM? You're exactly right. It's a true daily double. (laughs) Very good. Ding, 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 ding. Yes, his tabulating machine would become one of the business business machines that led to the founding of IBM. So there were several different inventors. They brought all of their business machines together, and that is what founded IBM. Wow, that long I had no, that I honestly had no idea. Crazy. So yeah. the I the I in IBM is international, right? Yeah. So IBM stands for International Business Machines. Right. Right. So there were four or five. And I, I apologize because I tried to keep this high level. I didn't get all of that. There were four or five different business machines and different founders. They all came together to provide those business machines in 1911. 
Believe it or not. Crazy. Okay. So now we're moving ahead into the 1900s now. Um, the 1900s to the 1950s. In 1936, Alan Turing developed an idea for a universal machine, which he would call the Turing machine, that would be able to compute anything that is computable. The concept of modern computers was based on this idea. And uh, we, we lost Rich's face. Yeah, he's back. Oh, you're back. Then in 1943, so now we're, we are 140 years along already. John Motchley, I should have practiced all of these names ahead of time, and Jay Presper Eckert, professors at the University of Pennsylvania, built an electronic numerical integrator and calculator. The, um, the acronym is ENIAC. ENIAC? That's considered to be the grandfather of digital computers, as it was made up of 18,000 vacuum tubes and filled up a 20-foot by 40-foot room. That's insane. That, and those vacuum tubes put out a lot of heat. I can only imagine the cooling required to keep a room like that, you know, right? keep those things working. <laughs> okay, 1950, uh, built in Washington, D.C., the Standards Eastern Automatic Computer, or SIEC, was created and became the first stored program computer completed in the United States. So it was the first computer that actually had a computer program on it. It was a test bed for evaluating components and systems in addition to setting computer standards. So now we move up to 1958. Quick question before yes. you get there. Please. Um, it's been uh, eating away at my mind since you said it. In like the the 30s, you said the Turing machine, right? Yes. Is that from the Imitation Game? That movie? That is exactly. Yeah. Yep, that's yeah. Alan Turing from the Imitation Game. And yeah. I was going to oh, make that reference and couldn't think of the name of the movie. So thank you, Ben. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Excellent movie. No, I have not. Awesome. Awesome, awesome movie. Yeah. That that okay. should have been that should have been question number two. <laughs> <laughs> Missed opportunities. Yes. Darn it. In 1958, Jack Kirby and Robert Noyce, sure, invented the integrated circuit, which is what we now call a computer chip. Kirby was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics in the year 2000 for his work in computer innovation. 1962, IBM announces the 1311 disk storage drive, the first disk drive made with removable disk pack. How much do you think each disk pack weighed? Oh my gosh. Ooh, wow. If I bring pounds. it up, it's more than you think, right? Oh, yeah. 100 pounds? 100 pounds? And hold on. Before he gives the answer, let me throw a number out there. That, that's heavy, man. That's like. Without going over. It's a small person. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go prices right and say 101. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I'll guess, I'll guess 65 pounds. Okay. I was wrong. It was not more than you thought it would be. It was 10 pounds. <laughs> oh, okay. Each pack weighed 10 pounds and held six discs and had a capacity of 2 million characters. Hmm. Okay. Now, yeah, well, compared to today, right? Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. 
1968. This is more, I, I want to just add a caveat here and say this is maybe more nerd history than computer history. But as a nerd, I had to make sure I included it. 1968, <laughs> Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey hits theaters. This cult classic tells the story of a computer as it malfunctions during a spaceship's trip to Jupiter to investigate a mysterious signal. The computer, which controlled all the ship, went rogue, killed the crew, and had to be shut down by the only surviving crew member. The film depicted such computer innovations as voice and visual recognition, human-computer interaction, speed synthesis, and other advanced technologies. What was the computer's name? God, this whole time I knew that was going to be your question. <laughs> Hal. Hal something. Hal? Oh, good. Great. Hal Linden. No, it was the Hal 9000. That Hal is correct. Hal 9000. Okay. I didn't get the numerology behind it, but I got the how. Sorry, I, I can't do that, Kit. Dave. I was going to guess Kit, but I knew that was just Knight Rider stuck in my head. Knight Rider's car. Totally <laughs> different. In a couple more decades there, or maybe yeah. the next decade, you would have been all set. But Yeah, probably similar technology, except he didn't kill David Hasselhoff. Right. <laughs> as much as he Genesis, probably wanted yeah. to. <laughs> 1968, Ellen Shugart and a team of IBM engineers invented the floppy disk allowing data to be shared among computers. That same year, Xerox introduced the world's first laser printer, which not only generated billions of dollars, but also launched a new era in computer printing. Also in 1971, and we can see as things are starting to go faster and faster, email begins to grow in popularity as it expands to computer networks. Primarily, I think, um, Military right. and government Ar computer Ar networks. Ar yep. In 1975, the pop the magazine Popular Mechanics featured the Altair 8800 as the world's first microcomputer kit. I think you could get that at Radio Shack. <laughs> Paul Allen and Bill Gates offered to write software for the Altair using BASIC. Basic computer language, yep. not being just like basic and drinking. No, we used to program spice lattes, but oh, yeah. basic. We knew, we knew all new basic back then. Yeah, you could say that writing software was successful for uh, Paul and Bill because in the same year they created their own software company, Microsoft. 1976, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak start Apple Computers and introduce the world to the Apple One. First computer with a single circuit board. What was the original retail price of the first Apple computer? Here's the price is right question. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. $2,000. $16.99. <laughs> That is true. Price is what, right? <laughs> Strategy, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I love this question so much because there's no way you guys would have gotten this right. You ready for it? $666.66. What? <laughs> Not only is that cheap, but that's a pretty ominous sign of a, right. <laughs> of a pricing. <laughs> Model. That is correct. So here's what Steve Wozniak had to say about that. The wholesale price of the computer, Apple's first product, was $500. And the retail markup 
of one third equals six hundred sixty-six dollars and sixty-six cents. Wozniak said he liked it because he was quote into repeating digits and it was easier to type. Quote, we didn't know the number had religious religious significance. <laughs> Wozniak's <laughs> Apple's co-founder admitted in an interview. We found out. <laughs> I bet they did. Yeah, pretty quickly. <laughs> Hey, moving into the 80s, in 1982, instead of going with its annual tradition of naming a man of the year, Time Magazine does something a little different, names the computer its machine of the year. A senior writer noted in the article, computers were once regarded as distant, ominous abstractions like Big Brother. In 1982, they truly became personalized, brought down to scale so that people could hold, prod, and play with them which I think is such an interesting quote because they were so big in 1982. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In 1985, Microsoft announces Windows, which allowed for multitasking with a graphical user interface. That same year, a small Massachusetts, say that five times fast, computer manufacturer registered the first .com domain name, Symbolics.com. And what year was that in? 1985. No, wow. That's that's surprising. That's early. Okay. Also, the programming language C++ is published and is said to make programming, quote, more enjoyable, end quote, (laughs) for the serious programmer. Side note, fun fact, C++ is the computer course I took in college because I was required to take some kind of technical course and that's what I chose to do. And it's done me no good. <laughs> <laughs> Did you enjoy yourself? <laughs> Did I? It was, quote, more enjoyable. <laughs> hey, moving ahead, 1995. Windows 95 operating systems launched. And to spread the word, a $300 million promotional campaign was rolled out. Featuring the TV commercials that use Start Me Up by the Rolling Stones and a 30-minute video starring what two stars from the television show Friends? Well, two out of four, you've got to yeah. <laughs> hmm. Can I, I can. I'm going to guess Ross Google and Rachel. Ooh, Ross and Rachel would be a really good guess. It's wrong. But it'd be really you're close. You're 50% there. Oh. Because one of them is Jennifer Aniston. Okay. Okay. And, um, uh, Matt LeBlanc, the other one. Joey, it, right? Give me get one, give it one more shot. Yeah, the other Chandler. Dude? Chandler, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Matthew Perry and Jennifer name? Aniston. I don't remember that commercial. And I wouldn't have remembered it. I Except I literally just saw a meme of it. Oh. Somewhere of them like on the cover, because you could get the disc with them on the cover with their little 1995 was the year I bought my first computer for the home. That was it, it, it and it was an IBM. <laughs> you definitely had that case with with Chandler and Rachel on it. Yeah, I probably did. <laughs> It was installed, Windows 95 was installed on more computers than any other operating system. 1999, 
the term Wi-Fi becomes part of the computing language as users begin connecting without wires. Without missing a beat, Apple creates its airport Wi-Fi wi router and builds that connectivity into its Macs. Okay, so we are already 200 years on, and here's where things start to go move really, really fast. <laughs> 2004, the first challenger of Microsoft's Internet Explorer came in the form of Mozilla's Firefox 1.0. In other technology news, what social media platform launched in the same year, 2004? Facebook. Bingo, Facebook launched also in 2004. So happy 16th birthday to Facebook. Yeah, I guess. She's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> not an active participant in any. <laughs> in 2007, Apple released the first iPhone, bringing many computer functions to the palm of our hands. It featured a combination of a web browser, a music player, and a cell phone, all in one. Users could also download additional functionality in the form of apps. The full touchscreen smartphone allowed for GPS navigation, texting, a built-in calendar, a high-definition camera, and weather reports. All the important stuff. <laughs> 2011, Google releases the Chromebook, a laptop that runs on Google Chrome's operating system. Also in 2011, the Nest Learning Thermostat emerges as one of the first Internet of Things. You were mentioning the Internet of Things before we came on here, and you're going to talk more about that later, right, Rich? Yes. Allowing for remote access to a user's home thermostat by use of their smartphone or tablet. It also sent monthly power consumption reports to help customers save on their energy bills. 2015, this is the end of our timeline because then everything, like, there's just no way. You can't, you can't cram it in. No, we yeah. be able to find it changes every day. That's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. After this, it's just everything else happened. Apple releases the Apple Watch, which incorporated uh, Apple's iOS operating system and sensors for environmental and health monitoring. Almost a million units were sold on the day of its release. That release was followed closely by Microsoft's big announcement, which would be Windows 10. Boom. <laughs> I'm exhausted. And that brings us, that brings us up to date to at <laughs> least the last five years we should be able to remember, right? <laughs> Hope so. Right. Crazy. But so, you're right. Those last few years, sorry to cut you off, Ben. It's just been, it's just nonstop. Every day there's a new, something else changes. And yeah. It's just total nonstop. Yeah. So awesome segue. I mean, it's super interesting to look back and <laughs> and like hear these dates and hear what changed and uh and to hear sue pick up the pace as the dates <laughs> got closer and closer and closer Keep rolling just, on the way into yeah, the unreal so um yeah it's interesting to realize how innovation has accelerated exponentially um to the point now that if we tried to just talk about the notable innovations over the last five years we could probably fill a whole nother podcast so We'll put that on our idea list too. Great idea. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Rich, how does that kind of constantly shifting landscape affect an IT team or maybe more to the point, a business that doesn't even have an IT team? 
Well, as as we just mentioned here, we get to the you know these last few years, things change so much. But one thing that's been absent from all these talks and 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 all these you know as we're moving through the years is as as we keep with all these advancements, the more open things get. You know, with these phones now, you can access your things at home. With Nest, you have these you these thermostats you can access from your phone. It's just opened the world up. And when ARPNET or the internet came out, you know, originally for military use, but it was eventually rolled out to everybody. And I can remember my first, when I got my first PC in 95, you know, used to be lambasted with ads, you know, go something.com, like quick, give me newspaper. I got to find the .com. I can still remember what my first website was. And I don't know why, but it was toyota.com. 1995 Toyota had a website, but as, as it's opened up, so have the holes and so have the bad guys. And they're out there at every turn, every time uh, something gets fixed, they find another way around it. So as wonderful as all these things are, I'm going to be Debbie Downer and, and just say some of them are dangerous. And if you're running a business and you don't have somebody looking at this stuff, um, I can almost guarantee people have been poking around and prodding in your stuff. Guarantee it. Yeah. Wah, wah, wah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> that, was, that was the Debbie Downer noise. the black flag. Here I am, you know, whatever. <laughs> so how, I mean, no doubt, like, um, it's like so many other things that um, we provide and that um, other businesses provide. Like, sometimes you just, you have to trust the professional to do the things that, you know, protect you or uh, I mean, everything right down to fixing the toilet properly. Right. Like if you're, if that's above you, like, that's cool. Like hire a professional to come in and do that stuff. You know, it's the same thing, very different work, obviously, but same thing applies to it security <laughs> and stuff like that. Right. But, um, what, what is it? Um, so off the cuff question here, sorry to go off script, but, um, what is it about, like some of these bigger IT companies or not even IT companies, just bigger companies that are living in the same world we're living in where, like you said, everybody's waiting around the corner or maybe already in your systems poking around and stuff. How can some companies stay off that radar as far as a company that maybe their security is a little lacking or you're constantly concerned about a breach. And then there's other companies that maybe are just as big, have as many assets or the same global network, the same ability to hire talent. Um, but yet they're, they're falling victim to some of this stuff. Yeah. There's, there's, there's no way to get off the radar because the bad guys are out there and they're just sitting there and their little room with all their other hacker buddies enjoying tea and crumpets or whatever else they eat in those countries that they're doing this in. And and they're just, they're finding addresses. They're just scouring the internet and looking for in addresses. And they're just sending a little hello. Hello, Mr. Router. Hello, Mr. Internet Connection. And if they get a little like, uh, yeah, any response back, everything stops. And then they whoosh, they're, they're honing in on that. They don't care if you're big or you're small. It doesn't matter. If they find a, somewhere that responds to them, that's basically how it works. They'll just reach out and poke all these things. You'll, as soon as they get something back, they know they, they'll try the next thing. They'll like, okay, well, what's your name? And they'll just keep going for more information. I'm keeping it really simple here. But I mean, if you have a, if you have a, uh, a firewall protecting your that goes on the internet uh, that protects you from all the traffic. It allows traffic out and allows traffic in and you can set these rules. So it doesn't 
do what you don't want it to do. You can you can monitor these things, and you can sit there and actually, if you're in a big big company which has a lot of uh, internet use, you can see them coming in all day long. People knocking on that door all day long, ding 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 ding, ding. It, and it's absolutely crazy the amount of times you'll get a hit during the day. So, I mean, you know, it's just, it doesn't even, like I said, it could be Jimmy's insurance or Jimmy's hardware or Jimmy's toilet repair or, you know, something big, uh, you know, uh, Bank of America. You're still, they're still coming out and they're still, they're, they're probing and trying to get anything they can. Yeah. So since you were so kind as to explain that to us marketing people in uh, non-IT terms, explain to us what people should what what we should do about it i that like that seems very scary and nefarious and relentless yeah i mean if nothing else you should have somebody if you've if you have a business that is connected to the internet in any way you should have somebody uh, an it professional scanning your equipment on a regular basis you know once a year at least i would recommend probably even quarterly Scan your equipment, see what's in there. They the software has been written to go in and look and see if there's anything that's you know array or 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 not like it's supposed to be. Um, but you know, besides that, you know, pl please have in place all the tools you really should have. You know, antivirus, anti malware, um, a firewall to protect you. Um, but and, and again. Somebody should come in and scan that stuff and look inside your network and take a deep dive because many of these Trojans and these worms and all these things can be loaded or, or snuck by or clicked on an email or something and they can sit dormant forever. And you don't even know that they have, you know, they've landed in your systems um, and they're actually doing work and they're, they're being drones for other bad nefarious guys who, and they're just sending out instructions from something else. So, um, having having somebody look at it every once in a while is definitely recommended and it doesn't matter again what size company you are um if you don't have anybody looking at it there's I, i'm almost positive there's something in there and when you say connected companies that are connected to the internet i would imagine you are not just talking about places like financial institutions that have a heavy reliance on internet technology, but all the way to somewhere like a local coffee shop that's using Square and a, and a point of sale system and probably does their books through Quicken. And that is enough. Am I right? Oh, yeah. If, if you internet. are connected to the internet at all, and we were talking about earlier the with the internet of things, I mean, everything's connected to the internet. And that's why so many people you hear about in the news all the time. Everybody's home is getting uh, attack now with the nets and these video cameras. If you have a device that's sitting out on the internet, somebody can find it. If you don't put the procedure, I mean, the, the processes and procedures and, and defense in place, some they're, believe me, it's, it's easy enough to do and they will. They're going after the cash. And for the most part, they're looking for money and stuff that can skedaddle out the back door and stuff like that. But, you know, once in a while, the young guys, the young looking for fun, will mess with your cameras or mess with your temper thermostat or something like that. But um, as I was chatting earlier, I just read an article this morning um, about a casino that was hacked um, through Internet of Things. Of all things, the fish tank thermometers in the big fish tanks inside this casino 
were on their network, but connected to the internet. The bad guys got in through the fish thermometer and then hacked their entire network getting in through the fish thermometer. The big target breach a few years ago was, was somebody got in through the air conditioning system, the air conditioning um, monitoring system that was on the roof of some big office building was connected to a network. They hacked into that and got through the whole network. And once you get in, you know, the gates are open. You can go anywhere you want. Yikes. And is there, is there any proof Rich, that the fish in the fish tanks had anything to do with that breach or have we? I don't know. Um, I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to think of a bad fish name. They were piranhas. So there's, okay. there's there a might chance. Be some chance that they were involved in this. <laughs> okay. Just, I just wanted to check. You know, what I love about that story, Rich, is that whether we're talking about an old school um, bank heist or we're talking about a modern day data breach, the air conditioning system can still be that point of vulnerability, (laughs) right? There's just maybe not people, you know, rappelling down the HVAC tubes to the vault. Yeah. Uh, Well, we could like go on and on forever. So Rich, heads up, you're likely going to be returning to the show sometime in the future to dive a little bit more into some subcategory of everything we've talked about today. But it is time to wrap up. And as we do uh, with every episode of Awesomeology, we are going to dive right into something awesome. Not that it hasn't been awesome already. Um, and this is where we share recommendations, cool things that have happened, cool stuff we're reading, anything we want to share and stuff. So I'm going to kick it off with um, just one of my favorite things in the world in the technology uh, space. And as simple as it might sound, I think that they're just a thing of beauty. And those are keyboard shortcuts. Now, I went to school for graphic design. And one of the first things that we learned about as we started to learn the software and stuff were the keyboard shortcuts. And I remember like the feeling of my fingers, like not being able to contort the right way on the keyboard, you know, because your, your, your whole school career, uh, elementary, whenever you start like keyboarding and typing, you know, like you're just taught the, how to type words and maybe you get over to the 10 key and start to type numbers and stuff like that. Right. But, um, you just create all of these habits with your hands on just how to type like essays and letters and bulleted lists and stuff like that. So like to know that my thumb had to hit command and then my pinky had to reach up to the next button, you know, just, it felt so awkward to me, you know? So I think that sometimes just like anything else, right? Like it's so tough to form those habits and that muscle memory to use them consistently and stuff. But, oh my gosh, like once, once, you know, you put yourself into practice and you have to learn those things, the time that you save. And now, like, as I'm working on stuff, whether I'm designing something, something, or even just like working in the operating system or in, you know, even a word document, like, those keyboard shortcuts are usually pretty universally translatable, um, you know, across systems and applications and stuff. So, you know, we all know the basics, copy and paste and things like that, but there's hundreds of other keyboard shortcuts and some specific to certain programs or certain classes of programs like the Adobe creative suite that are, you know, translatable across all of them. So, um, 
Like this is my plug to anyone who's on a computer often, which is so many of us today, right? Um, we'll share out a couple links of some of the most popular Windows and Mac keyboard shortcuts. Uh, check it out. Um, it's going to look overwhelming because like I said, there's hundreds of them, but maybe just like take a quick scour of the list and see like which three things you maybe do most commonly and just try to like learn those and start yeah, with those. Add it to your arsenal. There's yeah. No and it's like, you know, you save half a second every time, but Holy cow for as much time as we spend on technology, that's, that's huge savings over time. So cool. I'm a huge advocate for, um, for keyboard shortcuts and that fight. I'll, I'll go right to the top with that fight. They're so important. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody's fighting you though. I think that's what my just, <laughs> I, I know I'm so passionate it's gonna sound I'm so passionate it's gonna sound like a fight every time I can't help. But, but you know what, Ben? Every once in a while I get, you know, I get a lot of emails from tech groups. I, I get I get one of those email blasts that has shortcuts and there's always one I didn't know about on there. It's like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. And like and then you, you know, like I say, add it to your arsenal. So that's good stuff. I'm going to go next, Sue. You should go next because okay. my recommendation is so far away from tech stuff that it's crazy. Okay. Well, all right. Well, then um, I obviously subscribe to a lot of technical emails and email blasts and websites, and I get notifications all the time. Some of them from the government, some from semi-government. Um, but if you're a, if you're a Here's one that's not too nerdy and it's not too in-depth, um, but always has some good stuff on it. If you run a business and you use the internet, you should be checking out Krebs on security. Um, this guy updates his website all the time. You can get on his email blast list and get notifications. Just little and it's all about security, all about using the internet and, and things like that. Um, very handy stuff. Some you might not know about. Um, well, all of you are not going to know, about, but some might apply to you. Some will not apply to you. Um, but it's definitely interesting reading, if, even if you're not uh, in the technology field. If you're doing business and you want to be safe on the internet, check out Krebs on security. Nice. Will you send me that link so yes, we can share that one out too? Yes, I will. We'll share awesome. the link, but we'll share the link. But how do you spell that, Rich? K R E B S. Got it. Sweet. My recommendation, um, another area in which I am nerdy, uh, is a movie that we watched, and the name of the movie is Giant. It's on HBO. I think it's an HBO original movie, and it is a biopic about Andre the Giant. So fun fact about me, you guys, um, late seventies, early eighties, watched a lot of wrestling yes, with my dad. <laughs> so Andre, the giant to me, you know, they, when they, they really talk too about how since he, since he passed away and he passed away so young and he's been gone so many years that he started to take on this mythological sort of sense and then he's one of these people that it, in fact there there actually was a uh one of the people they interviewed in the documentary talked about you know put him up with paul bunyan and johnny appleseed <laughs> and these, you know these people who they ex there were people that existed that they've built this mythos around and that andre the giant is one of them that we will see years down the road is uh becomes this legendary figure. And it just was, 
it was so well done. It was so empathetic toward um, what the sort of the struggles he went through. And, you know, especially when you start to find out how ill he was for so much of his life. And then for the wrestling, you know, the 1980s wrestling nerd in me to pull back the curtain on the wrestling industry. And it goes through in a really, uh, a really detailed but interesting way how professional wrestling formed around him and uh, just what that looked like. And it was, it was fun because they interviewed so many wrestlers. Wow. A lot of the, some of the people they talked to were the heels. Heel is, is a wrestling term for the bad guy. For the bad guy, yes. Yes, they were the heels back at that time. And, you know, probably very decent people, very, you know, whatever, compassionate people who were playing a part. And I, I turned to my husband, we were watching, and I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I can listen to that guy. I used to hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait to see that. Oh, it was so good. It's on HBO. You should definitely watch it. Check it out. Even if you, I think, even if you were not a 80s wrestling nerd the way I was, um, I think it's it's well really well done. Yeah, he was the first, you know, big star that traveled wherever. And he was worldwide because I saw him in uh, late seven or mid to late seven, 75, 76, somewhere around there in Regina, Saskatchewan, Stampede Wrestling. He was he was the main event first wrestling I ever went to live. Um, and that's what got me hooked on wrestling too. It was like, I just could not believe the sheer size of this man and who he was right. pitted against. And it was, and I still remember that guy, his name was killer Brooks. Um, just the size of Andre. And yet when he was done, he took time to shake everybody's hands and the fans and the autographs. Mm. And, and it was amazing. So I'm definitely need to check that out. I didn't know that that was on there. Yeah. You'll, you'll really enjoy it. It was, it, you know, you mentioned that, you know, him, him traveling and they, they point out he really was one of the first to transcend that regional wrestling. And he, yeah, yeah, he could yeah. go and he could sell out anywhere he went. And probably I think is the reason worldwide wrestling and the really like the, uh, like national wrestling coverage was able to come into his own, its own at the time, because it was this, sort of basic cable experience for people up until, you know, Vince McMahon senior and, you know, some of the people in his wrestling group. So anyway, nice. that's the wrestling nerd report for today. <laughs> you want to, and also PS spoilers, Hulk Hogan can, can do imitations of a lot of people. Which was delightful. He had like spot on imitations of a whole bunch of wrestling people wow. that he just drops into and drops out of. So he was super fun to watch. So, okay. That's, that's me. I'm done gushing now over that. Okay. That, wow. I can't that was wait. great. Wait yeah, my appetite I, for that big time. Yeah. I'm totally going to have to check that out. It's uh, I had a little blip on the radar when I was a kid with pro wrestling, but we're talking like, the undertaker and uh i'm trying to like jake the snake might be like the oldest guy i can remember that i watched so like uh, i go back to some Bruno of these other ones are a little bit before my time i suppose but, yeah awesome 
Well, uh, Rich, thanks so much for being here. This is super fun. Yeah, um, oh, for sure. Thank you so much yeah. for having me. I enjoyed myself again. We'll have you back. And thanks to our friends for tuning in. Yes. Okay, so links to all of this stuff that we just talked about will be below and some of the other links that including the links to my extensive research, which was not extensive at all, but was really helpful. So I'll include that. Uh, also, your friendly reminder, you can find us on your favorite podcast app or you can visit our blog at exclamationqso.com slash blog and hear all of our episodes. Awesome. And thank you again, Rich, for being here. Thanks to all of our guests for tuning in. This is Sue and Ben, your self-proclaimed professors of awesomeology, reminding you that life's awesome if you make it awesome. We'll see you next time. <laughs>